Chapter Fifteen of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Fifteen. In the saloon of a homeward-bound steamer, twenty-four hours from port, and that port Southampton, a lady sat writing letters. Her age was about thirty. Her face was rather piquant than pretty she had the air of a person far too intelligent and spirited to be involved in any life of mere routine on whatever plane two letters she had written in french one in german and that upon which she was now engaged was in english her native tongue it began dearest mother all's well a pleasant and a quick voyage the one incident of it which you will care to hear about is that i have made friends a real friendship i think with a delightful girl of respectability which will satisfy even you judge for yourself she is the daughter of dr derwent a distinguished scientific man who has been having a glimpse of colonial life when we were a day or two out i found that miss derwent was the object of special interest she and her father had been the guests of no less a personage than trafford romaine and it was reported that the great man had offered her marriage who started the rumour i don't know but it is quite true that romaine did propose to her and was refused i am assured of it by a friend of theirs on board mr arnold jacks an intimate friend of romaine but he declared that he did not start the story and was surprised to find it known miss derwent herself oh no my dear cynical mamma she isn't that sort she likes me as much as i like her i think but in all our talk not a word from her about the great topic of curiosity it is just possible i fear that she means to marry mr arnold jacks who by the by is a son of a member of parliament and rather an interesting man but i am quite sure not the man for her if she will come down into hampshire with me may i bring her it would so rejoice your dear soul to be assured that i have made such a friend after what you are pleased to call my riff-raff foreign intimacies a few words more of affectionate banter and she signed herself helen m borisoff as she was addressing the envelope the sound of a book thrown on to the table just in front of her caused her to look up and she saw irene derwent oh, what's the matter why are you damaging the ship's literature she asked gaily no i can't stand that exclaimed irene it's too imbecile it really is what our slangy friends call rot and very dry rot have you read the thing mrs borisoff looked at the title and answered with a headshake oh imagine an awful apparatus of mystery blood-curdling hints about the hero whose prospects in life are supposed to be utterly blighted and all because well what do you think because his father and mother forgot the marriage ceremony the other was amused and at the same time surprised it was the first time that miss derwent in their talk had allowed herself a remark suggestive of what is called emancipation she would talk with freedom of almost any subject save that specifically forbidden to english girls helen borisoff whose finger showed a wedding-ring had respected this reticence 
but it delighted her to see a new side of her friend's attractive personality. "'I suppose in certain circles,' she began, "'oh, yes, shopkeepers and clerks and so on, "'but the book is supposed to deal with civilised people. "'It really made me angry.' Mrs. Borisoff regarded her with amused curiosity. Their eyes met. Irene nodded. "'Yes,' she continued, as if answering a question, "'I know someone in just that position. And all at once it struck me. I had hardly thought of it before. What an idiot I should be if I let it affect my feelings or behaviour. Oh, I think no one would have suspected you of such narrowness.' "'Indeed, I hope not.' "'Have you done your letters? Oh, do come up and watch Mrs. Smithson playing at quoits. A sight to rout the brood of cares.' In the smoking-room on deck sat Dr. Derwent and Arnold Jacks, conversing gravely with subdued voices. The doctor had a smile on his meditative features. His eyes were cast down. He looked a trifle embarrassed. "'Forgive me,' Arnold was saying with some earnestness, if this course seems to you rather irregular. Oh, not at all, not at all. But I can only assure you of my honest inability to answer the question. Try, my dear fellow. Solvitur quirendo. Jack's behaviour did, in fact, appear to the doctor a little odd. That the young man should hint at his desire to ask Miss Derwent to marry him, or perhaps ask the parental approval of such a step, was natural enough. The event had been looming since the beginning of the voyage home. But to go beyond this, to ask the girl's father whether he thought success likely, whether he could hold out hopes, was scarcely permissible. It seemed a curious failure of tact in such a man as Arnold Jacks. The fact was that Arnold, for the first time in his life, had turned coward, Having drifted into a situation which he had always regarded as undesirable, and had felt strong enough to avoid, he lost his head, and clutched rather wildly at the first support within reach. That Irene Derwent should become his wife was not a vital matter. He could contemplate quite coolly the possibility of marrying someone else, or, if it came to that, of not marrying anyone at all. What shook his nerves was the question whether Irene would be sure to accept him. Six months ago he had no doubt of it. He viewed Miss Derwent with an eye accustomed to scrutinise, to calculate in things imperial and other, and it amused him to reflect that she might be numbered among, say, half a dozen eligible women who would think it an honour to marry him. This was his way of viewing marriage. It was on the woman's side a point of ambition, a gratification of vanity, on the man a dignified condescension. Arnold conceived himself a brilliant match for any girl below the titled aristocracy. He had grown so accustomed to magnify his place, to regard himself as one of the pillars of the empire, that he attributed the same estimate to all who knew him. Of personal vanity he had little. Purely personal characteristics did not enter, he imagined, into a man's prospects of matrimony. Certain women openly flattered him, and these he despised. 
his sense of fitness demanded a woman intelligent enough to appreciate what he had to offer and sufficiently well-bred to conceal her emotions when he approached her these conditions miss derwent fulfilled personally she would do him credit a wife of course must be presentable though in the husband appearance did not matter and her obvious social qualities would be useful yet he had no serious thought of proposing to her for one thing she was not rich enough the change began when he observed the impression made by her upon trafford romaine this was startling romaine the administrator of world-wide repute the man who had but to choose among great britain's brilliant daughters or so his worshippers believed no sooner looked upon irene derwent than he betrayed his subjugation no woman had ever received such honour from him such homage public and private arnold jacks was pricked with uneasiness irene had at once a new value in his eyes and he feared he had foolishly neglected his opportunities if she married romaine it would be mortifying she refused the great man's offer and arnold was at first astonished then gratified for such refusal there could be only one ground miss derwent's heart was already disposed of women have hearts they really do grow fond of the men they admire a singular provision of nature he would propose during the voyage but the voyage was nearly over he might have put his formal little question fifty times it was still to be asked and he felt afraid afraid more than ever now that he had committed himself with dr derwent the doctor had received his confession so calmly whereas arnold hoped for some degree of effusiveness was he oh, hideous doubt preparing himself for an even worse disillusion undoubtedly the people on board had remarked his attentions for all he knew jokes were being passed nay bets being made it was a serious thing to proclaim oneself the wooer of a young lady who had refused trafford romaine who was known to have done so and talked about with envy admiration and curiosity you either carried her off or you made yourself fatally ridiculous half a dozen of the passengers would spread this gossip far and wide through england there was that problematic mrs borisoff a frisky grass widow who seemed to know crowds of distinguished people and who was watching him day by day with her confounded smile who could say what passed between her and irene intimates as they had become did they make fun of him did they dare to arnold jacks differed widely from the common type of fatuous young man he was himself a merciless critic of fatuity he had a faculty of shrewd observation plenty of caustic common sense yet the position into which he had drifted threatened him with ridiculous extremes of self-consciousness even in his personal carriage he was not quite safe against ridicule and he felt it this must come to an end he sought his moment and found it at the hour of dusk the sun had gone down gloriously upon a calm sea the sky was overspread with clouds still flushed 
and the pleasant coolness of the air foretold to-morrow's breeze on the english channel with pretence of watching a steamer that had passed arnold drew miss derwent to a part of the deck where they would be alone uh, you will feel he said abruptly that you know england better now that you have seen something of the england beyond the seas i had imagined it pretty well replied irene yes one does under common circumstances arnold would have scornfully denied the possibility of such imagination he felt most unpleasantly tame you wouldn't care to make your home out yonder oh heaven forbid this was better it sounded like emphatic rejection of trafford romaine and probably was meant to sound so i myself he pursued absently shall always live in england if i know myself i can be of most service at the centre of things parliament when the moment arrives the moment when you can be most mischievous said irene with a glance at him <laughs> that's how you put it yes most mischievous the sphere for mischief is growing magnificent he talked without strict command of his tongue just to gain time spoke of expanding britain and so on a dribble of commonplaces irene moved as if to rejoin her company oh, don't go just yet i want you now and always sheer nervousness gave his voice a tremor as if of deep emotion these simple words which had burst from him desperately were the best he could have uttered irene stood with her eyes on the darkening horizon we know each other pretty well he continued and the better we know each other the more we find to talk about it's a very good sign don't you think i can't see how i'm to get along without you after this journey i don't like to think of it and i won't think of it say there's no need to her silence her still attitude had restored his courage he spoke at length like himself with quiet assurance with sincerity and again it was the best thing he could have done i'm not quite sure mr jacks that i think about it in the same way her voice was subdued to a very pleasant note but it did not tremble i can allow for that uncertainty though i have nothing of it myself we shall both be in london for a month or so let me see you as often as i can and before you leave town let me ask whether the doubt has been overcome i hold myself free said irene impulsively oh naturally i do you no wrong if it seems to me impossible none whatever his eyes were fixed on her face dimly beautiful in the fading shimmer from sea and sky irene met his glance for an instant and moved away he following arnold jacks had never known a mood so jubilant he was saved from the terror of humiliation he had comported himself as behoved him and the result was sure and certain hope he felt almost grateful almost tender toward the woman of his choice but irene as she lay in her berth strangely wakeful to the wash of the sea as the breeze freshened was frightened at the thought of what she had done had she not in the common way of maidenhood 
as good as accepted arnold jacks's proposal she did not mean it so she spoke simply and directly in saying that she was not clear about her own mind on any other subject she would in fact or in phrase have reserved her independence but an offer of marriage was a thing apart full of subtle implications needing to be dealt with according to special rules of conscience and of tact some five or six she had received and in each case had replied decisively her mind admitting no doubt as when to her astonishment she heard the frank and large confession of trafford romaine the answer was an inevitable no to arnold jacks she could not reply thus promptly relying on the easy terms of their intercourse she told him the truth and now she saw that no form of answer could be less discreet for about a year she had thought of arnold as one who might offer her marriage any girl in her position would have foreseen that possibility after every opportunity which he allowed to pass she felt relieved for she had no reply in readiness the thought of accepting him was not at all disagreeable it had even its allurements but between the speculation and the thing itself was a great gap for the leaping of mind and heart her relations with him were very pleasant and she would have been glad if nothing had ever happened to disturb them when her father suggested this long journey in arnold's company she hesitated in deciding to go she said to herself that if nothing resulted well and good if something did well and good also she would get to know arnold better and on that increase of acquaintance must depend the outcome as far as she was concerned she was helped in making up her mind by a little thing that had happened there came to her one day a letter from odessa on opening it she found only a copy of verses with the signature p o a love poem not addressed to her but about her a pretty poem she thought delicately felt and gracefully worded it surprised her but only for a moment thinking she accepted it as something natural and was touched by the tribute she put it carefully away knowing it by heart impertinence oh surely not long ago she had reproached herself with her half coquetry to piers otway an error of exuberant spirits when she was still very young there was no obscuring the fact deliberately she had set herself to draw him away from his studies she had made it a point of pride to show herself irresistible where others failed in their attack upon his austere seclusion she would succeed and easily she had succeeded only too well and it never quite ceased to trouble her conscience now learning that even after four years her victim still remained loyal she thought of him with much gentleness and would have scorned herself had she felt scorn of his devotion no other of her wooers had ever written her a poem no other was capable of it it gave piers a distinction in her mind which more than earned her pardon but poor fellow he must surely know that she could never respond to his romantic feeling it was pure romance and charming if only it did not mean sorrow to him and idle hopes 
such a love as this distant respectful she would have liked to keep for years for a lifetime if only she could be sure that romance was as dreamily delightful to her poet as to her the worst of it was that piers otway had suffered a sad wrong an injustice which when she heard of it made her nobly angry a month after the death of the old philosopher at hawes mrs hannaford startled her with a strange story the form it took was this that piers having for a whispered reason no share in his father's possessions had perforce given up his hopes of commercial enterprise and returned to his old subordinate position at odessa the two legitimate sons would gladly have divided with him their lawful due but piers refused this generosity would not hear of it for a moment stood on his pride and departed thus mrs hannaford who fully believed what she said and as she had her information direct from the eldest son daniel otway there could be no doubt as to its correctness piers had behaved well he could not take arms from his half-brothers but what a monstrous thing that accident and the law of the land left him thus destitute feeling strongly about it irene begged her aunt when she next wrote to odessa to give piers from her a message of friendly encouragement not of course a message that necessarily implied knowledge of his story but one that would help him with the assurance of his being always kindly remembered by friends in london six months after came the little poem which irene without purposing it learnt by heart a chapter of pure romance one which irene felt could not possibly have any relation to her normal life and perhaps because she felt that so strongly perhaps because her conscience warned her against the danger of still seeming to encourage a lover she could not dream of marrying perhaps because these airy nothings threw into stronger relief the circumstances which environed her she forthwith made up her mind to go on the long journey with her father and arnold jacks mrs hannaford did not fail to acquaint piers otway with the occurrence and those two months of companionship told in arnold's favour jacks was excellent in travel he had large experience and showed to advantage on the highways of the globe no more entertaining companion during the long days of steamship life no safer guide in unfamiliar lands his personality made a striking contrast with the robustious semi-civilization of the colonist with whom irene became acquainted she appreciated all the more his many refinements moreover the respectful reception he met with could not but impress her it gave reality to what miss derwent sometimes laughed at his claim to be a force in the great world then that eternal word empire gained something of a new meaning she joked about it disliking as much as ever its baser significance but she came to understand better the immense power it represented on that subject her father was emphatic if remarked dr derwent once if our politics ever fall into the hands of a stock-jobbing democracy we shall be the hugest force for evil the poor old world has ever known you think said irene that one can already see some danger of it well i think so sometimes 
but we have good men still good men do you mind telling me miss derwent asked whether our fellow-traveller seems to you one of them hmm. oh, on the whole yes his faults are balanced i think by his aristocratic temper he's too proud consciously to make dirty bargains high-handed of course but that's the race the race things being as they are i would as soon see him in power as another irene pondered this it pleased her on the morning after arnold's proposal she knew that he and her father had talked dr derwent a shy man rather avoided her look but he behaved to her with particular kindliness as they stood looking toward the coast of england he drew her hand through his arm and stroked it once or twice a thing he had not done on the whole journey ah oh, the brave old island he was murmuring i should be really disturbed if i thought that death would find me away from it foolish fancy but it's strong in me irene was taciturn and unlike herself the approach to port enabled her to avoid gossips but one person helen borisoff guessed what had happened irene's grave countenance and arnold jacks's meditative smile partly instructed her on the railway journey to london jacks had the discretion to keep apart in a smoking carriage dr derwent and his daughter exchanged but few words until they found themselves in bryanston square during their absence abroad mrs hannaford had been keeping house for them with brief intervals spent now and then in pursuit of health she had made bryanston square her home since the change in her circumstances two years ago lee hannaford held no communication with her content to draw the modest income she put at his disposal and olga her mother knew not why was still unmarried though declaring herself still engaged to the man kite she lived here and there in lodgings at times seeming to maintain herself at others accepting help her existence had an air of mystery far from reassuring on meeting her aunt irene found her looking ill and troubled mrs hannaford declared that she was much as usual and evaded inquiries she passed from joy at her relative's return to a mood of silent depression her eyes made one think that she must have often shed tears of late in the past twelve months she had noticeably aged her beauty was vanishing a nervous tremor often affected her thin hands and in her speech there was at times a stammering uncertainty such as comes of mental distress dr derwent seeing her after two months absence was gravely observant of these things i wish you could find out what's troubling your aunt he said to irene next day something is and something very serious though she won't admit it i'm really uneasy about her irene tried to win the sufferer's confidence but without success mrs hannaford became irritable and withdrew as much as possible from sight the girl had her own trouble and it was one she must needs keep to herself she shrank from the next meeting with arnold jacks which could not long be postponed it took place three days after her return when arnold and mrs jacks dined in bryanston square john jacks was to have come but excused himself on the plea of indisposition as might have been expected of him 
Arnold was absolute discretion. He looked and spoke, perhaps, a trifle more gaily than usual, but to Irene showed no change of demeanour, and conversed with her no more than was necessary. Irene felt grateful, and once more tried to convince herself that she had done nothing irreparable. In fact, as in assertion, she was free. The future depended entirely on her own will and pleasure. That her mind was ceaselessly preoccupied with Arnold could only be deemed natural, for she had to come to a decision within three or four weeks' time. But, if necessary, the respite should be prolonged. Eustace Derwent dined with them, and Irene noticed, what had occurred to her before now, that the young man seemed to have particular pleasure in the society of Mrs. Jacks. He conversed with her more naturally, more variously, than with any other lady of his friends, and Mrs. Jacks, through the unimpeachable correctness of her exterior, almost allowed it to be suspected that she found a special satisfaction in listening to him. Eustace was a frequent guest at the Jacks, yet there could hardly be much in common between him and the lady's elderly husband, nor was he on terms of much intimacy with Arnold. Of course, two such excellent persons, such models of decorum, such examples of the English ideal, masculine and feminine, would naturally see in each other the most desirable of acquaintances. It was an instance of social and personal fitness, which the propriety of our national manners renders as harmless as it is delightful. They talked of art, of literature, discovering an entire unanimity in their preferences which made for the safely conventional. They chatted of common acquaintances, agreeing that the people they liked were undoubtedly the very nicest people in their circle, and avoiding in the suavest manner any severity regarding those they could not approve. When Eustace apologised for touching on a professional subject, he had just been called to the bar, Mrs. Jacks declared that nothing could interest her more. If he ventured a jest, she smiled with surpassing sweetness, and was all but moved to laugh. They, at all events, spent a most agreeable evening. Not so Mrs. Hannaford, who just before dinner had received a letter, which she at once destroyed. The missive ran thus. Dear Mrs. Hannaford, I am distressed to hear that you suffer so in health. Consult your brother. You will find that the only thing to do you good will be a complete change of climate and of habits. You know how often I have urged this. If you had listened to me, you would by now have been both healthy and happy. Yes, happy. Is it too late? Don't you value your life? And don't you care at all for the happiness of mine? Meet me tomorrow, I beg, at the museum, about eleven o'clock, and let us talk it all over once more. Do be sensible. Don't wreck your life out of respect for social superstitions. The thing once over, who thinks the worse of you? Not a living creature for whom you need care. You have suffered for years. Put an end to it. The remedy is in your hands. Ever yours. D.O. End of chapter 15